Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. The White House has pledged that President Biden will not pardon his son on any of the federal charges he's facing. What are you hearing about that? Well, his camp is not saying much about it, but my observation and analysis is that Hunter Biden has been acting like a person who may expect a pardon. Because, first of all, he walked away from that plea deal, which the judge raised questions about, but they were not able to reach a deal. This plea agreement would have called for no jail time. Now he's facing two felony indictments, and he still doesn't have the immunity that he was seeking in that plea deal. He's going on offense. You saw him make those public statements. That's not the behavior generally of a criminal defendant, uh, but it, 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 it's, you know, some people believe it could be the behavior of someone who does, never expects to see the inside of a prison cell, even if convicted on these very serious charges, Kristen. Now, that last part, Ken Delanian, is true. But let's go back just a moment to the first part. It's not that the plea deal fell apart. It's that the judge asked a question that both clearly the DOJ and the Hunter Biden lawyers never expected her to ask. If we strike a plea deal, does that mean charges against Hunter Biden can't come in the future? That was a very simple question. And the DOJ said, well, if, if, if there are charges in the, in the future, there would be charges in the future. And that's when Hunter Biden's legal team went bat crap crazy. How dare you? This is for everything. We'll rip this up right now. What do you mean you'll rip this up right now? Nobody talks like that. That is insane. So yes, this is a, I think, an observation that is of value from NBC News that Hunter Biden does indeed act like a guy who never expects to see the inside of a courtroom. But that's because he still thinks he's under the protection of a sweetheart deal that never came to be because a judge was smart enough to know that she was getting duped by Hunter Biden's lawyers and by the DOJ because they would have let this thing go, let the judge sign off on it. And then they'd say, you know, we'd like to bring these other charges against Hunter, but we did this plea deal. and Now we can't do it. Oh, well. And then everything would just move on like nothing had happened. When in the world of Hunter Biden, many, 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 many things have happened. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, so good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. And of course, all of this moves into the conversation regarding Joe Biden and the possibility of impeachment. And who's defending him? Eric Swalwell. I see a good and decent man in Joe Biden who united the country and all the evidence has shown that he loved his son. Uh, his son was on hard times and he bought his son a truck and his son paid him back. He loaned his brother money and his brother paid him back. Joe Biden is just a, a decent American who uh, fought MAGAism and is seeing them use this against him. And as I said, in this sick and perverse way. Uh, if there's anybody who knows anything about sick or perverse, it's the guy who couldn't bring himself to bang a Chinese spy. I, I, I know what they say. 
that he uh, had a, he was a in flagrante delecto with the Chinese spy. What I'm saying is there's no way he actually did it. He's not man enough to do it. That's what I'm saying. Put it down. Write it down. Love for son is not a defense. He loves his son so much. So what? What does that matter? Not a defense. It's not even an argument. It's some ridiculous... If, if you really want to find a way to pull at the heartstrings of liberal white women, oh, oh, that's the way to do it. But as we all know in America, liberal white women are the problem. Now, I know they hate hearing that, so al- allow me to say it again, just to make sure that we all understand each other here. It's extremely important that we're all on the same page when when it, it, it comes to this. Liberal white women will buy into anything, absolutely anything. You see, you're secretly all racists, and you don't know it, and you have to admit to what terrible racist you are. Oh, yes, we're terrible racists. We'll actually spend money to attend dinners to be called racist, and then if we should ask a question, we'll realize that questioning is racism, and we will cry. But we're not allowed to cry because cries are tears, and tears are shields, so we just have to take it. Thank you, sir, may I have another. We're good liberal right white women. That's, That's what we are. And this goes on in a million ways. You want to you want to actually try and win an election, get liberal white women to say, look, he just loves his son. Why is why is that a crime? Why don't more fathers love their sons like Joe Biden loves Hunter? Because sometimes love blinds somebody. That's why. Because love is not a defense. As it turns out, like we have said many times, Love is not love, is not love, is not love, is not love. Sometimes it's all just a lie. Hunter Biden is a duplicitous dude. And Joe Biden knew plenty about Hunter Biden's activities. And I'm going to get more into this as we talk about the possibility of, of impeachment and where it goes down the line. The big story right now is that the Senate has delayed the holiday recess. This is about Ukraine and the border. Now, of course, we have been discussing border all this week. Border Week presented by Americans for Prosperity. I've got more interviews for you today. The multi-parts of the border, uh, concepts of the wall, concepts of technology, concepts of policy, concepts of, of labor. Uh, the there the it, it's this never-ending piece, and not piece. These never-ending number of pieces that have to be put together in order to get a border policy that matters. But a border policy has to be of benefit to the United States first and foremost. No policy can exist that doesn't better strengthen the United States or secure the United States, which is another way of saying better strengthen, because a secure nation is a strong nation. It doesn't start with the need of the person coming across the border. It doesn't start with the need of Mexico. It doesn't start with the need of a Central American country. It doesn't start with the need of these ridiculous, terrible, lying NGOs, these non-governmental organizations that teach people to lie about asylum. 
starts with the safety and security of the American citizenry. Then it start, Then it moves into the growth and opportunity of America. The immigrant can then thrive, and we can thrive. It cannot be they thrive and we suffer. That doesn't work. Now, you, you ask uh, the, the political left, and uh, they'll tell you that it does work. Because they don't move policies that don't involve that. Wait till you, I mean, and you've heard some of it this week, how impossible... Things are for people who who have the job. For example, lettuce. Do you like lettuce? Do you like a salad? I'm not talking about kale. I'm talking about romaine. Something you'd actually eat. If you want it picked, it isn't getting picked by Americans. When the conversation comes up about jobs Americans won't do, it is an honest conversation. And as gets well explained, it isn't even so much about the physical labor. It's about where the lettuce farms are. Americans aren't moving to these border areas. But people who are coming into the country, migrants by nature, have more opportunities to go to more places. Less tied down by other spots, of course. So why do we make it so incredibly impossible for them to get jobs and so incredibly impossible for Americans to get jobs? We make it so onerous that we seem to want to be able to push the idea that only somebody here illegally can have the job, which is an insanity. It doesn't make the country safer, and it doesn't create more prosperity. It's nonsense. But why does this? Why is it now we're at the best, best last chance to get this legislation done? That's what Schumer said. Democrats want to get billions of dollars in aid for Ukraine. Ain't going to happen without a border. Schumer saying to my Republican colleagues who have said action on the border is urgent. Let's keep working to find a solution instead of rushing for the exits. If Republicans are serious about getting something done, they should not be so eager to go home. This may be our last best chance to get this legislation done. First of all, I don't know why it would be a last best chance, but... I don't care if members of the Senate go home for Christmas. I, I, for, for the record, uh, I, I, I'm in Indiana. My senators are Todd Young and Mike Braun. Uh, nice enough guys. Um, but I don't care if they go home for Christmas. It means zero to me if they're with their families for Christmas. They asked for this job. They ran around the state. They spent a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of promises. So if this is what it takes in order for us to actually get some movement on the border... You stay in D.C. I don't know. Get takeout. Chinese food on Christmas, delicious. I recommend the spring rolls. But I have no idea what Schumer thinks he's going to do. What is he going to, what is he going to offer up? If you do not start with, we will end the radical asylum rules that we have right now. We will change those rules, remove the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, and demand absolute transparency. And the people who claim asylum, who are not asylum seekers, will never be allowed into the country again. I mean, I'm a guy who has got some pretty strong thoughts on this. Is is, is Schumer going to go along with that? I don't know. But as a matter of, of, of just a, a weird place of agreement that you might have with Chuck Schumer, no matter how much that freaks you out, 
I don't care if the Senate goes home. I don't care if the House goes home. That's, that is not my problem. You're the one who wanted to be called congressman. You're the one who wanted to be called senator. You're the one who wanted to wear the fancy pin and get the good parking spot. Okay, you got it. Now you work until the job is done. As a matter of fact, none of you can go home until we have a secure border. How about that? If you haven't figured out how to secure the border through some at least starter policies, how about when you're not there doing the work in the Senate, we send you down to the border to work with Border Patrol because then at least you'd be earning your keep. Because you sure as hell aren't doing it now. No, no idea. No idea. And the recommendations are coming from absolutely everywhere including Representative Henry Cuellar, who has been um, uh, very, very strong uh, on on this subject. He's been very much so, uh, as, as a Democrat out of, out of Texas, one of the very few who has been clear-minded uh, about the border itself, saying that why doesn't uh, Joe Biden just copy Barack Obama? Well, look, I, I respect my colleagues. They certainly have a different opinion. But some of us have been talking about this since 2013. You know, you talk to some of us on the border. We think a little differently. Uh, I don't have any sanctuary cities. I don't have any uh, public officials that say, let them in, let them in. We've been dealing with this migrant situation for so many years. Now that New York, now that Chicago, Washington, D.C., Colorado, Massachusetts, and other places are feeling what we felt this is what we've been talking about this i don't call this a republican idea because some of us pushed this idea before some of those republicans were even in office uh we just want to see one thing at the border we want to see law and order we want to don't want to see chaos at the border but at the same time we want to respect the migrants uh rights and their claim to asylum but again the law is very clear persecution by a state by a state based on five things and those uh, most of those folks do not qualify they do not qualify do you think it's important sir to have latino representation in these talks well, you know, uh, Secretary Mallorca is certainly involved uh, in, in the talks. Uh, I have talked to some of the folks uh, about it. Uh, in fact, some of the ideas that they're looking at are ideas that I've talked about it. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, the Senate should have uh, Latinos, but it's not only Latinos that should be involved. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we want to make sure that the migrant rights, because right now, migrants are not coming only from right. Latin America. They're coming in from 50 plus countries across the world. We have about 30 seconds left and I want to get you on the record with this and that is the launch of this impeachment inquiry into the into uh... I don't need to know about the impeachment inquiry. But he's right about the sanctuary cities. All these progressives who have screamed sanctuary cities and they were going to show you how good they were. I mean it's it's again, it's liberal white women all over again. You want to talk about the problem? Let me be clear. We can't just throw these people out. We need to be a sanctuary city that's welcoming to everybody. That'll really show those terrible Republicans how to be good people. And liberal white women said, that's exactly what we should do. We should open up our city and our hearts. And then they opened up the city. And, they, and the people said, well, wait, 
Now the city's so dangerous. And then the city said, stop being racist. And the liberal white women said, you're right, we're racist, even though our kids are now under threat. We're so sorry that we're racist. We can't help it. It's just who we are deep inside. Have I, have I been, have I made it perfectly clear what I think about liberal white women? Have I just, is it too on the nose? Is that what's happening? Am I just, am I just hitting it too directly? Uh, just one after another. Ha, has the nail been driven directly through the board by this stage? The sanctuary cities thought they were so decent and so smug. And then they had to deal with the reality how dare you bust these people around? I actually got told, so you're just in favor of bussing people like they put Jews in trains in Nazi Germany. Uh, the Jews in Germany didn't cross a border to get there. The border crossed them. That's number one. And number two, God, that's twisted. And number three, now New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Martha's Vineyard have all learned. D.C. has learned. The border is an American issue. And America has to fix it. I'm Tony Katz. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Did McCarthy have an altercation with Gates, or did he just call him psychotic? Oh, he didn't say it to his face. Because this was basically Kevin McCarthy's last day. These were the last votes. There won't be any more votes. He's re- uh, resigning at the end uh, of the year. So he's uh, he's done his last work in Congress. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. And of course, he. Oh, it's also bittersweet. And he gave his final thoughts on this and that and the other. But referring to. Matt Gates as psychotic. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation studies minds like his. Oh. People study that type of crazy mind, right? Mainly the FBI. I, I don't know. Gates won? I just, I just, I still haven't figured out what it is that 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 got one through uh removing McCarthy. I I don't. McCarthy uh telling uh, Politico late November, uh you have a cross section of the delegation, you have Gates who belongs in jail and you have serious members. Oh okay. Um it it is very obvious that uh there, there is an extent to which McCarthy had had uh, outstayed the welcome. The people were just not down with his style. Uh, there is, without question, the fact that Gates remains, and people do see him as a fighter. I'm just saying this whole maneuver on Speaker, I don't think got us anywhere. And even the conversation about the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, 
is it really that much stronger than what McCarthy could have done? You still have an extension of Section 702. You still uh, didn't have the abortion uh, requirements, um, you know, removed in terms of of what it is that the def- defense uh, world will spend for people's abortion. So, what did you, what what actually changed here? Now, I have that conversation with Congressman Jim Banks. I'll bring that to you in in a bit because he sits on Armed Services in in the House of Representatives. Uh, as for who replaces McCarthy. And how that special election process works, I'm not 100% sure. What I know is Republicans have basically no majority now and no room for error. That is that is not fun. Oh, in a re-election, where very possibly they can lose the House. I didn't say they will. I just said it's possible. I'm Tony Katz. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. So the talk has been about Harvard and MIT and University of Pennsylvania and being in front of this congressional committee and Congresswoman Elise Stefanik asking the question, you know, you you have students chanting uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They're calling for genocide of Jews. Does this uh, run afoul of your uh, rules there on campus? And these college presidents with smiles on their faces said, well, it depends on the context. Genocide depends on the context. Every day on a college campus, it seems, you've got a mini Charlottesville going on. Remember Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. And my commentary was, we don't want to, I'll speak on behalf of the Jews, we don't want to replace you, we're doctors. The last thing we want to do is wear those khakis and live in our mom's basement. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. But the argument was they were talking about uh, replacement theory and this was, this was anti-Semitism at, at its worst. But we're seeing it on colleges, on college campuses, and in downtowns all across America daily, and nothing gets said. As a matter of fact, Liz McGill loses her job at University of Pennsylvania, but Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, she gets protected even when it is clear she is guilty of plagiarism, which Christopher Rufo and others have done a very fine job of exposing and just putting the side-by-side data out there. But there are other things happening like at Butler University in Indianapolis. Butler University, which is a private university, actually engaged an investigation into the school's college Republicans because the college Republicans condemned a group called Students for Justice in Palestine for holding these anti-Israel protests this just days after the October 7th attack from Hamas, a terrorist organization where they murdered and raped and beheaded 1,200 plus Israelis and others, including children. And for questioning what it is that this group, Students for Justice in Palestine, uh, uh, has done, there's now this conversation happening at Butler that they, that the Republicans, the college Republicans, have overstepped and they're now, they're now in the hot seat. Tony Kinnett 
has been reporting on this, investigative columnist with the Daily Signal and a radio host at my home station, 93.1 FM WIBC in Indianapolis. You hear him nightly, uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Um, your your job, uh, Tony, is is to find the stories and, and when you're in your world, the stories come to you. How did this story from Butler University come to you? So I first heard about this protest that had been scheduled because it was days after the Hamas attack into Israel. There had been no retaliation from Israel, just the Hamas invasion uh, and the harm of civilians, uh, harm putting it lightly. And this huge day of, of jihad was coming up, and so there was going to be this protest in Indianapolis. So I covered it live for the Daily Signal and WIBC, walked around with my camera, filmed several hours of footage to kind of see what was going on. And then for the next couple of weeks, kind of nothing. And I get a message from the uh, president of the college Republicans, a young man named Aidan Konke. And he asked me uh, if he, I had a few moments and he said they were under a official investigation by the Title IX coordinator at Butler because they had put out a letter on Instagram condemning Students for Justice in Palestine, which sponsored and hosted the event and said that the university should abide by its non-discrimination policy. They said they were being investigated, this being the college Republicans, for inciting harassment and violence towards Muslim and Palestinian students. Now, and it had been going on at that point for five weeks. Let, let, let's now take just a quick step back. This group, Students for Justice in Palestine, uh, as, as, as you uh, ha- have noted, this is a group that's been suspended from other campuses, including Rutgers uh, campus, Rutgers University. I don't always know if I agree with those kinds of maneuvers, but there's no doubt that Students for Justice in Palestine, which I've talked about before, a leftist organization, a socialist organization, and very clearly, and your research bears this out, an anti-Israel, anti-Jewish organization. Yes, the, the things that were chanted by that uh, protest setting Uh, The protesters at that rally are deeply anti-Semitic from the river to the sea, that ethnic chant. And also, in my opinion, the far more disturbing, not a victim, not a crime chant saying that Israel actually wasn't a victim. So therefore, the Hamas terrorists were not actually committing a crime. And they actually claim that the GOP group at Butler was lying when they accused the protesters of saying that. But I have the footage of them chanting that, that's why Aiden originally contacted me. And so this this Republican group then posts a letter saying this is wrong. That's what they said. This is wrong. Do you have a? It, it, was there anything that you read within the the letter itself that could be construed as somehow threatening, or was it just the exposing of what happened, Tony? In my opinion, you can read the letter for yourself up at the Daily Signal. Uh, In my article, we post the full letter that was up on Instagram. The article condemned the actions as anti-Semitic. It accused the members of the Students for Justice in Palestine organization as celebrating the deaths of Israelis by chanting, not a victim, not a crime. And uh, then said the university should act according to its non-discrimination policy. To me, that's the opposite of incitement. If I ask the, the... authority organization to act according to their laws uh if i ask you know someone to investigate and then carry out according to policies that's the opposite of vigilanteism and incitement i'm asking for calm respectful investigation to be done as you write talking to tony kennett 
He is uh, an investigative columnist for the Daily Signal, radio host at 93.1 FM WIBC in Indianapolis. The college Republicans called for Butler, Butler University, to follow the non-discrimination policies you're discussing of its own Office of Student Activities. But you're saying that the person who runs the Title IX side of things turned this back on the Republicans. First, what is the Title IX coordinator? What is their job? And what did the Republicans specifically hear from this coordinator at Butler University? The Title IX coordinator currently at Butler University, her name is Azure Swinford. She was just hired on in August of 2023. She used to work at Indianapolis Public Schools in their Title IX office. Title IX is gender-related discrimination law. Uh, Title VI would be more racial discrimination law, which is what Butler is alleging here. But uh, according to emails that we received, uh, Swinford received complaints from the pro-Palestinian students and then filed basically a request for investigation. And then Butler appointed her, the lady who filed the petition for investigation, to investigate the situation. But by that time, again, according to the emails that she sent, she had clearly decided the college Republicans were guilty because she told them, take down your Instagram post. And I quote, don't post anything else that incites, end quote. So by that quote alone, she's already told them that she, that she thinks that they're guilty. And then the next five weeks were silent. She said they could be disbanded. Maybe the university would give them a warning. Results are still pending. So the... Butler Republican Club, uh, as they see it and you report it, they were, you feel, uh, in looking into this, they were threatened by Butler University and by uh, Swinford, who runs this Title IX office. Absolutely. I believe, especially given the status of a lot of students kind of getting ready to graduate, uh, that the organization was, again, told that they could be disbanded. I do believe that this constitutes being threatened into silence. And that's unacceptable of any organization anywhere. Uh, you note that uh, the Daily Signal, and I'm quoting here, uh, I, I, I'm quoting, has not been able to find any document indicating that Butler University is investigating the behavior or activity of Students for Justice in Palestine during this rally. The rally that you're referring to, and, and groups like this, Students for Justice uh, in, in Palestine, uh, then there's, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace. This is all reminiscent of Monty Python. It's the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front, and it all gets rather <laughs> rather confusing. This event from this group, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, this anti-Israel group, and, and that's me saying it, um, this didn't happen on the Butler campus. Does that change the dynamic of how Butler responds to it? According to the non-discrimination policy in the student handbook, students are students at Butler, whether they are on campus or not on campus. That's the agreement signed with student organizations and with students between Butler when they go to the university. And because of that, everyone has to play by the same rules. So that means if we're going to investigate Republicans for what they say on or off campus and whether that aligns with a non-discrimination policy, one would expect that the Students for Justice in Palestine would be held up to the same standards. But in this situation, that does not appear to be the case. The, um, the Butler University uh, Republican Club there. Uh, have they, you're saying that it's been weeks that they haven't heard anything from the university since this, or has there been 
more conversations of if you do this, if you say that, if you have an event here, you will be held responsible and possibly expelled, etc. cetera. Uh, have they been warned in any way? Have there been explicit threats of being removed from the campus, removed from the student body? Uh, so Azure Swinford has met with the college uh, Republican president and then the upcoming president for the next term uh, a couple of times, but no update that I have been told of on any situation regarding where the investigation is at has been given. There is no indication as to where this investigation is currently, how this investigation was conducted. And in fact, the, the two young men had a meeting uh, with Swinford in which she stated um, it made it sound like the investigation was complete, but maybe it wasn't complete. They're completely in the dark in this situation. And over such a simple claim, this should have been investigated open and shut in a week. Did the Palestinian students or the pro-Palestinian protesters, I should say, did they make this chant or didn't they? Because that's what you're condemning. That's all they had to do. Now and you have it's taken over six weeks to answer it. You have video of this. You saw That's this true. happen. In that video, you are saying that some of the things chanted were long live Palestine, which would be a questionable thing. What does that actually mean? Not a victim, not a crime, not a nickel, not a dime, nor, nor, no more room, you, you, you say it says, for Israel's crimes. Uh, now, you're saying that not a victim, not a crime. Is that uh, to the idea that Israel is not a victim, they deserve what they get? Or is that to the ideas we have heard from others on other campuses and other places? Uh, we heard this, for example, in Oakland in one of their uh, town hall kind of meetings. Uh, no one from Israel was killed by Hamas. That was all the IDF and that propaganda that somehow Israelis killed their own people. I've heard both. But at the time when that chant was chanted, I had not seen on social media or abroad anyone saying that Israel had done this to their own citizens. At that time, the justification on social media, because remember, at this time, Hamas was still openly bragging with social media and GoPro videos of what they were doing. So it was at that point difficult to suggest it was all a big psyop. So instead, at that moment, I believe, based on the context that was going on around social media, that it was justifying the actions of Hamas. And the evidence for this is footage from uh, the what is it, the RT, that Russian channel that has a lot of Hamas individuals on, Al Jazeera, that were making these claims at that moment in time. You, you have a quote from Jay Green, senior research fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy and Daily Signal is part of a Heritage Foundation. And, and he states, and I'm quoting, launching a harassment investigation against an organization for objecting to harassment by another group has a chilling effect. If this were done to groups expressing concerns about police abuse or sexual misconduct, everyone would recognize how inappropriate it was. But because it was done by Republicans expressing concerns for Jews, Butler sees no problem. Um, is the is the point of, of this expose, as you're doing this reporting, to try and, is, is the result to try and get Butler to recognize that they're engaging in their own harassment of students is this to just show that the these double standards li like mr green is discussing here are happening everywhere and with impunity Wh what would you like to see the result of your reporting be the first and primary result of this reporting is that because azure swinford is the title nine coordinator which is a federally funded position even at a private university 
I believe that there are questions regarding the ethicality of this investigation. And I think that if federal funding is being used unethically, I think that there should be a federal investigation into how Butler is allowing students to be investigated using federal money. That would be the first and foremost thing. But number two is, yes, as you mentioned, I'd like to bring awareness to the intense double standard here, which is that you're right. This would be insane. Imagine someone was sexually assaulted. They called for an investigation and they themselves were investigated. It would be insane. It would be just beyond foolishness. But this is the standard that a lot of these DEI offices have set. I mean, Swinford is the, I think, the associate director or the assistant director of institutional equity. And this is how these organizations function. Some groups are protected, some groups aren't. And that determines who receives justice and who doesn't. Tony Kinnett, investigative columnist for The Daily Signal, weeknights, 7 p.m. on 93.1 FM WIBC in Indianapolis. You find him on the X Twitter at The Tonus, T H E. T-O-N-U-S. Tony Kinnett, always appreciate it. I've got more to get to. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. It is true that every time I hear the whole Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voice for Peace, the only thing that goes through my head every single time is, is this. Life of Brian, Monty Python. Are you the Judean People's Front? F*** off. What? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. The only people we ate more than the Romans are the f***ing Judean People's Front. Yes. 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 And the Judean popular People's Front. Oh, yes. yes. Split. Split. And the People's Front of Judea. Splitters. Yes. The People's Front of Judea. Splitters. We're the People's Front of Judea. Oh. I thought we were the popular front. People's Front. Whatever happened to the pop in the front? He's over there. I mean, these guys were freaking soothsayers. Way ahead of their time. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Um, yeah. What I what I think might be uh, for us more of a, uh, of a of a serious topic on this is there's a lot of people out there willing to support terrorists because they're not supporting Palestine. They're supporting Hamas, and they can't do the division anymore. They can't say, no, we're supporting the people of Gaza. No, you support Hamas. That's what you support. You support terrorists, and you support the destruction of a nation and of a people. That's what you support. I'm not letting them off the hook. Splitters. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Live from the heartland, and the crossroads of America. It's Tony Katz today. So the NDAA passes the House of Representatives. It's going to Joe Biden's desk. It's going to be signed. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. And it passed 
by a huge number out of the house. 310 to 118, just like it passed with a huge number out of the Senate. The question is, no changes to Section 702, no conversation regarding abortion funding. Was this the win that Republicans were looking for when they made big changes to Speaker? Congressman Jim Banks joins me right now from the Indiana 3rd District, candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. You were a yay vote on the NDAA. Talk to me about what you saw in this legislation that got your vote. Yeah, well, the defense bill, we pass it every year. I'm on the committee. I'm the only member from Indiana on the House or the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, uh, The biggest pay raise for our troops in 20 years across the board, the modernization of our American military so that we have better, more sophisticated emerging technologies to fight and win wars against adversaries or enemies like like uh, like like the Chinese, like uh, Iran, North Korea, Russia, uh, the the, uh, the 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 bigger threats that we face on the horizon. So that that's why the, the also in the defense bill, Tony, a lot of really important provisions for Crane, which is a major military base in Indiana that is on the front lines of a lot of sophisticated emerging technologies and a lot of provisions that are important for our major defense employers in Indiana, like Rolls-Royce and uh, up my way, uh, Ultra Electronics that make Sonobuies and Humvees and Elkhart. And a lot of, we have have tens of thousands of defense jobs in Indiana and they're growing because of of programs that are a part of this bill. So also on top of that, I, I led the fight on a lot of issues like banning critical race theory. This is the first bill that has ever been passed out of Congress that bans CRT from being pushed on our troops and kids on military bases. That's in the bill. Banning uh, pride flags and non-American flags on military bases. Um, uh, uh, we dismantle the DEI, the, 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 the woke bureaucracy at the Pentagon because of an amendment that I passed in the bill that, that caps their pay at a very low amount. There are lots of, lots of issues and other provisions that, that always that, that I don't agree with in this bill, but my, my, uh, my ultimately I voted for it, Tony, because the good outweighed the bad, and we need to support our military when the world is turned upside down and do what we can to project strength around the world, and that's what well, this you bill won't, does. You won't get me to disagree with taking uh, wokeness out of the military. The military should not be an agent of social change, but there's been a lot of talk about whether or not the military should pay for abortions. That still seems to be part of the legislation. One would argue, could argue, that the whole out, McCarthy out and Johnson in was uh, to be able to to hold the line on issues like that. That issue did not have the line held. Uh, is there a reason? Yeah, this is an important issue to me, too. And in the in the House, we, we put a provision that blocked the abortion uh, pay. Now, the, the NDAA doesn't authorize paying for abortion. In the Hyde Amendment, it makes it illegal for the federal government to pay for abortion. So I actually think what the what the Pentagon is doing is illegal to begin with. It isn't to pay for the abortion, but to pay for troops to travel to a state that allows abortion. I fully oppose that. We had a we had a strong amendment in the House bill. It was taken out in the Senate. And at the end of the day, this is a this is administration policy. So uh, the only thing we could do was was do what we can to block it. But with a two seat Republican majority, a Democrat Senate, Democrat president who allows 
that policy to exist. It's going to take a Republican president to reverse that policy. And I'm, I'm fighting every day to make sure that we get a Republican back in the White House next November. And let's take the other big one. Section 702 remains for another four months. This is a conversation of warrantless uh, eavesdropping searches, if you will, uh, on foreign nationals. But sometimes American citizens get caught up in this. This has been the conversation of whether or not there are enough protections. And it remains. How do you explain that to the to the libertarian minded who have seen the abuse of FISA and of Section 702 by this government and by what many call the deep state? Yeah, this was disappointing. And I, I, I. I strongly disagreed with Speaker Johnson at the last minute agreeing with Chuck Schumer to put this extension into the defense defense bill. It doesn't belong there. I wish they would have kept it out. But at the end of the day, Tony, the the current FISA authorization has been the law for five years. And five years ago, President Trump signed this current version of FISA into law. So five years, we're, we're extending it for four months so that Chairman Jim Jordan of the Judiciary Committee can pass a new long-term five-year reform bill of FISA. So that's really important. That has to happen. Um, Otherwise, if you allow FISA to lapse, remember what what FISA does. FISA has been abused. It needs to be reformed. I fully support reforming it. But but if you allow it to lapse, you can't – then you stop the authorities that we have to track terrorists who are coming over our southern border or terrorists abroad who are planning attacks on the United States of America or on our bases abroad. So there are parts of FISA that are very important that you can't allow to lapse. At the same time, the next four months buys Jim Jordan, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, enough time to pass a long-term reform bill that would prevent prevent the abuses that we saw during the Trump administration. That's really important. That, That big vote will come in in four months when we have a chance to do that. Talking to Congressman Jim Banks from the Indiana 3rd uh, District, uh, candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. One of the big subjects in in the House has been uh, Ukraine and Ukraine funding and tying Ukraine funding to border funding. And, of course, the Democrats are infuriated. And Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, says it's a a, a non-starter. But Speaker Johnson has been clear the border has to be funded before there's a conversation about Ukraine. How is that coming along? Well, uh, this is an area where I give the speaker, the new speaker, high marks. I mean, he's he's put uh, uh, Schumer Democrats on notice. We're not going to pass any uh, aid aid bill for Ukraine until we secure the border. And we're not talking about just throwing more money at the border policies of the Biden administration that are allowing 12,000 illegals to cross every single day. Yesterday, 12,000 illegals came across our border. We're talking about H.R. 2, a strong bill that the House passed early on that resumes construction of the border wall, requires nationwide e-verified, ends catch and release. That's the most important uh, uh, policy that, that Trump stopped it. Biden allowed catch and release again. That's created the recipe for disaster at the border. More Border Patrol agents and then stopping these NGOs or nonprofits who are part of orchestrating and coordinating illegal immigration. So that H.R. 2 is a strong bill. There will be no no aid. pack. I'm not going to vote for any aid package for Ukraine that doesn't include H.R. 2 or stronger border provisions. And that's that's the widespread widespread uh, position of House Republicans. So let me interrupt you really quickly, sir. 
Let me just jump in here because you talk about the NGOs, the non-governmental organizations, and I know we're going to run late, but I'm good with that, um, who are teaching people crossing the border how to break the law. We're seeing, uh, we've been talking about it here for years, we're seeing actual physical evidence of it reported by Bill Malugan of Fox News and others. Describe what you mean. Yeah, I mean, these, uh, these, these charities, these nonprofits, I mean, they, they will go down and, and actually participate in the illegal crossing and then, then coordinate uh, where these illegals go from there and, and, and work with them all through the process. It's, it's insane that we allow that to happen, but the Biden administration actually promotes it and works with, with Catholic charities and other, other organizations that are a part of that process. We have to crack down on it again. The policies in the Trump administration deterred illegals from com- coming across the border. So that's why you had fewer crossings, because these types of activities weren't rewarded and coordinated and allowed to happen. Um, catch and release went away. And then the remaining Ill- illegals knew if they got caught, they're going to be sent back to Mexico. So that deterred them from crossing to begin with. And, and we got to go back to those policies. I'm not supporting any more money for Ukraine until we incorporate those type of tough uh, border policies that will secure our border and stop this madness and save our country. And that's where House Republicans, by and large, stand on this subject, while Schumer and the Democrats and some squishy Republicans in the Senate are talking about more aid for Ukraine. House Republicans remain resolved to to block those provisions. And it's a conversation I'd like to get into further. We'll save it for another time. Before I let you go, Congressman, uh, the impeachment inquiry has been formalized. You have Hunter Biden giving this press conference in front of the Capitol, but not showing up for uh, the hearing where he was uh, subpoenaed. He's standing next to Congressman Eric Swalwell. Now there's a conversation whether or not Swalwell should be found uh, in in any type of, of guilt for actually helping somebody avoid a congressional subpoena. Is impeachment of Joe Biden coming to a theater near you? I hope so. I, I fully support it. I've su- supported it for a good reason for for a very long time. You had every single House Republican vote for the impeachment inquiry. You have a handful of House Republicans who aren't there yet on impeachment. And, Tony, when we go into the new year with Kevin McCarthy quitting, with another congressman quitting to go be president of a college in Ohio, um, with George Santos gone, um, you're, you've, we've dwindled this House Republican majority from, from a slim five-seat majority now to a one- or two-seat majority. So you, you do the math, and you, if there are a half a dozen Republicans who don't support impeachment yet, the votes aren't there. But, the, but those same Republicans did vote for the impeachment inquiry. So hopefully the investigations, the subpoenas, the, let the facts speak for themselves. I hope we get to a point where Democrats come around and realize that their hypocrisy and what they impeached uh, uh, Donald Trump for supposedly doing is exactly in broad daylight what Joe Biden has gotten away with. And uh, th- those same uh, Democrats should be put to the test to see if they will, they, will invo- well, they will vote to impeach the most corrupt president in American history and Joe Biden. Now, that's a statement right there. Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I, I must again remind, impeachment is a political decision. And going into an election year, a presidential election year, one has to ask whether it hurts or whether it helps the cause. That is a consideration. The fact that you and I could sit on a bar stool, have a bourbon, and think that it shouldn't be is secondary to the reality that it is. 
Well, this is about whether or not a president committed high crimes or misdemeanors. This is about the country. That's what we have to be focused on. I agree. But we're not going to pretend we don't live in the real world, the real political world, and the politics matter. If they believe that it will hurt them, if it will hurt them politically in an election campaign to get Biden out of office, even though it might not be Biden who's the nominee, you know what I mean, they might not go forward. That's why I keep saying I'm 50-50. But it is very obvious that they are taking this seriously. And there was an interesting piece from Charles C.W. Cook over at National Review. And I like Charles uh, quite, a, quite a bit. Uh, I think he, he's a, a solid mind. And I don't agree with everything they write over there by any stretch. Part of the reason I read it is that I sometimes read things that I don't agree with so I can understand where at least they're coming from. And Charles did a, a more of a 180 than I did. Um, but in the same concept, here you have the Republican party talking about impeachment. Don't move until you see it. Don't move until you have it. Take your time, go slow. But when you watch the total insanity of the left in not admitting that Joe Biden did anything wrong, you want to tell us that he never spoke to his son uh, about his, his overseas business dealings. But yes, he did. I mean, yes, he did. You know it. I know it. We know it. He admits it. We all know it. So why in the world would you keep telling us that something didn't happen when, of course, it happened? Why would you say uh, that I have never talked to my son or my brother or anyone else in the distant family about their business interests, period. He said that in 2019, but he had. Why would he say, quote, my son has not made money in terms of things about what you are talking about, China. He said that in 2020, but the records show that Hunter Biden, his firm at least, got $11 million there. They keep saying there's no there there, when there is something there, and it is clear to the, to at least to the extent of what I brought up, that Joe Biden's lying. Why should I trust him now when he says this is all lies, this is all nonsense, this is all nothing? And so for Charles, he's like, okay, uh, you know what? I'm going the other way with this. Move towards impeachment as quickly as you like. Because this is messed up. I agree with that. And I still believe in going a little slow. Have it. Complete. I'm not opposed to impeachment. Again, a political decision. I'm opposed to not having all the ducks in a row. Now, sometimes you're like, hey, you just do the best you can. I agree. But do the best that you can. But the idea that... First of all, the idea that Hunter Biden, woe is me, I don't buy into any of that. That press conference, oh, they're just after me. Oh, and they just hate it because my father loves me so much. Your father's love is the problem. It blinds him. You are a shady dude. And Joe Biden, very clearly in my view, was involved. Get the ducks in a row, and if you got it, then we could talk about the impeachment going forward. My thanks to Congressman Jim Banks. This is Tony Katz today. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Well, I didn't think there was any question that New York's 3rd District wasn't going to go this way. Mazi Melissa Pilip, P-I-L-I-P, I think I'm pronouncing it right. This is who Republicans have chosen to replace George Santos. It will be a special election. Of course, Santos was expelled from the House, rightly or wrongly, uh, a freak, but rightly or wrongly on that. She's going to face off against a guy by the name of Tom Swozzi, S-U-O-Z-Z-I, former Democratic congressman. He used to represent this area. The story of Pilip, or it could be Pilip, she moved to Israel from Ethiopia when she was a child as part of something called Operation Solomon, which was an Israeli military operation airlifting thousands of Ethiopian Jews to the country. And then she served as a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Forces. She's a story. Now, There's also a story, according to Politico, that she was enrolled as a member of the Democratic Party since 2012 when it comes to the Board of Elections. But she ran on the Republican ballot in both her 2021 and 2023 races running for uh, other other offices. I I mean, this was the pick I thought they were going to make. This is going to be a fascinating race. It's going to take place, uh, so 90 days. So sometime in beginning of March? Beginning of March it's going to take place? Going to be fascinating in the backdrop of the Hamas attack on Israel in the backdrop of of Joe Biden's anti-Semitic America Joe Biden's anti-Semitic America this is Oakland where a menorah was destroyed and thrown into Lake Merritt one of those big menorahs they have uh, set up it was there on the amphitheater Joe Biden's America allows for open Jew hatred. You couldn't do this with any other group. Well, you could do it with Christians. They, they could destroy a cross and throw it away. Christians and Jews, you couldn't do this with any other group. I've got 13-year-olds who developed plans for attacking synagogues to kill those within. That's a true story, by the way. A 13-year-old, as reported by BearingArms.com, reportedly planning a synagogue shooting. Joe Biden's America. Never mind uh, the uh, Jew-hating college presidents uh, like like Claudine Gay, uh, the former president, Liz McGill. Uh, I'm even going to say Sally Kornbluth. What? You're not willing to stand up to calls for genocide on your campus? What am I supposed to call you? Friends? That, That dog won't hunt. My gosh, campuses everywhere that engage this bigotry. You just heard the conversation that we had regarding Tony Kinnett and what's happening at Butler University. If you complain about the students screaming for genocide of Jews, well, then we investigate you because you're the one inciting the violence. That's uh, a crazy, crazy story. Check the podcast for my conversation with Tony Kinnett of The Daily Signal. Joe Biden's America. They told me uh, Trump's America was so terrible, so horrible. Everybody hated each other. This is Joe Biden's America. Open Jew hatred. And for the Jews and non-Jews alike, buy guns, buy ammo, and get trained. And do that today, won't you? That'd be great for all of us. This is Tony Katz today.
Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. When talking about the border, I think one of the most fascinating conversations is that somehow everybody of a certain group all agrees all in the same way. Certainly, we see how the progressive left likes to pitch the idea that they're on the side of people who are Hispanic, or maybe they'll call them Latino. Lord only knows what name they'll come up for them next. Remember Latinx and all that madness? But no one ever asks if the people who are coming to America are on the side of the progressive left. And there are groups in the U.S. that are trying to work, deal with this immigration issue, which is an issue. It's, the southern border is the biggest issue in America. But come at it from a, the way they're phrasing it, the way they're placing it, the way they're spinning it, isn't the reality. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Jose Malaya joins me now for Border Week, presented by Americans for Prosperity. Uh, he is the CEO of the Libre Initiative, which is, is this group that's, that's trying to come at it from, from a different angle. Still the idea of you want the market reform, still the idea that you need the safety and the security of the United States, but these people coming across, why are we thinking that the progressive left is actually speaking for them? So I start with, with a baseline. Tell me about the Libre Initiative. Yeah, so the Libre Initiative is an organization that's educating the Latino community on a national level on the principles of economic freedom, first and foremost, right? That's what we that's what we do. We we engage the community directly across the country and we present programs to help them to understand what economic freedom is, what we mean when we say that, and how that impacts their lives. And most of the time, if not every time, people that have never heard that message before, they immediately come up to us and say, that is exactly why I came to America. That is exactly the message that I've been looking for. What is what is the message? Elevator pitch that for me, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, if I were talking to a constituent, I'm like, I, I would tell them, hey, I'm with the, I'm Jose Maya. I'm the CEO of the Libre Initiative. And we're here today to talk to you about why it's important to fight for the values that make America so special. Why it is that you came to this country seeking opportunity for you and your family. And that system that has been in place for such a long time has has been eroded by some of the legislation that our leaders have been promoting. And what is that system? The ability to start your own business out of the the, the garage in your home, the ability for you to, you know, find uh, uh, your maximum potential and and reach uh, your potential and your family's potential uh, by working hard and by doing the right things in this country, you, you'll get ahead. And I think that's what most Latino families want for themselves and for their children. And, you know, just to talk about another issue, educational choice, that's a big one. That's that's one of those issues that is sort of 60 plus percent across the board. People want good educational options for their children. And so these are issues that we talk about and it resonates it's and people immediately connect with us. It's it's always interesting that in the economic conversation that we have, it, and no matter where I am, it, it pivots back to school choice constantly and consistently. I mean, yeah. that is not the focus of our conversation. Yeah. But every single time in, in almost like clockwork, it comes back to, to, to that conversation. Any reason? 
You know, it's because at the end of the day that when we talk to people, we're we're focusing on what are the barriers that we need to remove in order for people to reach their full potential. And that's what Libra tries to do. Well, one sometimes it's, you know, they don't speak English. So we offer English education for people and teach them about the principles and the values through that those courses. Sometimes we teach them uh, driver's license courses. But when we really get down to it and we start talking to families, they tell us right away, I need to provide the best chances for my kids. I sacrifice my dreams by leaving my country to come here and do whatever it takes to get ahead for myself and my family. But I want my children to have the, to have those opportunities. And so you start talking about education at that point. What is it going to take? Well, we, we, we got to get them out of these failing schools, especially if they're in these urban communities where the system has let them down and give them the, the flexibility to go wherever it makes the most sense for them and their family. Talking to Jose Maya, he is the CEO of the Libre uh, an initiative. Uh, we have been focusing, of course, on, on the border and, and why people come to the United States in, in the first place, conversations about what border security is, policy around that, what the wall is, all the misconceptions uh, uh, about the wall. But certainly in, in people coming to the United States, you know, we, we constantly hear their refrain, not everybody is trying to do us harm. And, and I think the vast majority of Americans agree with that. They still want sensible policies, but they agree with the fact that many people are just coming for the better life. And we as a nation have no issue with legal immigration. But you talked about uh, sacrificing their dreams. We don't usually hear that conversation. Yeah. It's about having the better dream here. How often do you hear about people in, in Yeah, and I'll give you an example, right? And, and I think that's kind of, uh, for example, a choice that sometimes isn't made for you I grew up in a community surrounded by Cuban exiles. And, you know, my, my dad exiled from Cuba here in the late 50s, came from a poor family in Cuba, but still, you know, whatever aspirations he had in Cuba, they, they were gone the minute that the communist regime took over. Uh, and countless people around the world have had to suffer through this. So at that point, you got to make a choice. It's like I either stay in the system or, 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 I, or I go to America, uh, which, thank God, America was 90 miles away from, from Cuba, where they could have these opportunities to make a life for themselves and then have a family and make and, and, and provide better opportunities for their children. But there are folks who sometimes are in countries like Venezuela who are going through this transition, you know, uh, and, and they give up being a, an engineer, an attorney and a doctor to come to America to drive an Uber. But guess what? They would rather be here driving that Uber than in a system that takes away their rights, takes away their ability to, to get ahead, takes away their property. Right. And, and stifle speech and all the things that we see happen in these socialist regimes. Uh, but the same thing happens even in countries that aren't necessarily uh, declared communist or socialist. Right. Uh, you just reach a ceiling and you realize that your full potential can be achieved there. So you're better. You, you make the decision willingly to, to abandon that and come here and start over. And sometimes you don't get to go back to being a doctor, but you're happier doing whatever work you do, earning your success here in America and providing a better life for your family. The, the other side uh, that, that we often hear is that and, and we see is that a, a level of of ungratefulness. Uh, but very often we see that more on a political uh, side from uh, the progressive left than maybe people coming across the border. But our conversation today is about economics. Yeah, it's about what what is the impact of border policy? What is the impact of uh, illegal immigration. We can discuss the legal side. We have jobs. We do want to get them filled. That is a rational thing that's been going on for years. And there has to be a way to provide and supply for that. But there is another side of, of, of cost here. So depending on how you want to go about it, yeah. maybe you want to hit it in a more round robin, what have you, Jose. Um, talk to me about how a Libre initiative talks about the economic cost of immigration, yeah. both legal and illegal. 
so look, there, there's a lot of, like you said, there's so much we could talk about. I think on a higher level, yeah, we need to find a way to fix the broken immigration system, which unfortunately I feel like it incentivizes illegal behavior instead of coming here through legal pathways. And that's what we always advocate for these legal pathways. Some of the things you just mentioned, the fact that we have shortages in certain key high skilled areas, whether it's nurses or or certain doctors in rural communities and so on. And we can't fill those jobs, but those jobs are there. And there are talented people all over the world that are certified and qualified that want to do that work. That's a problem, right? Whether it's, you know, uh, we train engineers here that then leave our country and become the best, uh, you know, uh, contributors to economies in other parts of the world when they should be doing it here. So I think that's a big problem. But the illegal issue, uh, uh, the issue of illegal immigration is, it's a huge uh, quality of life issue in, in border communities that we hear from uh, families. Like, so we we are very well established in Texas, for example, also in New Mexico, Arizona, and so on. But in Texas, we hear from families that tell us, listen, I've been in this country 30 years. I came here. I follow the rules. I'm a citizen. I worked hard. I'm doing the right thing. I bought my home. And my community now is a disaster because our federal government can't get the system under control. They don't want that for themselves. It, it creates hardship and danger and all sorts of problems in these communities that are a serious issue. And on top of that, there is a fiscal uh, connection to that, right? Whether it's local right. services, federal, et cetera. So that's one. I think the other one is that by having this uh, just open like chaos, um, it also, people who come here, they come here leaving places that are chaotic. They come here leaving places where people don't follow the rules and they come here because they want to live under the structure that America provides. When you allow this other uh, dynamic to take hold, it just promotes more chaos. And I think that's inc incredibly discouraging to those that follow the rules, but it also doesn't serve the individuals that are coming over that way well at all, right? Because yeah, they're, they're not getting that that true, uh, you know, uh, message delivered to them of why it's important for us to continue to follow these rules in order for America to continue to be special for many generations to come. The, the whole concept of standards uh, is is not that a standard is limiting, but actually a standard sets you free. You know the rules. Everybody is following them and you know how to operate and engage. It's when you have the elimination of standards and nobody knows how to operate that a ruling class or a, a ruling group, a mob mentality could take hold saying you didn't listen to the rules and you didn't know what the rules were to begin with. Talking to Jose Maia, he is the CEO of the Libre uh, Initiative. So in the in this cost conversation, there is the cost to the American taxpayer, what it is that we're paying to seemingly allow illegal immigration uh, to take place. Uh, is it the, the position of, of Libre uh, that these, these costs should not be borne by us and therefore a streamlining of, of immigration policy should happen? Or that there are indeed some costs we should as a nation undertake because there's actually a better value that comes on the other side? Yeah, the crazy thing about it, and and I'm 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 I'm, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a very logical argument for those of us that see this happening, is that the cost of illegal immigration are probably greater than if you were to make the right investments on border security, on you know fixing a system that's been antiquated and hasn't had any real reforms since the 1930s, and so I think like so many things that our government does when it tries to overregulate, overadminister, overmanage. Uh, over control, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. In fact, it breaks it, and that's what we're seeing, right? And because there has been a lot of investment in this space, 
but it's not working. So I think the the economic impact of the things we talked about, the fiscal impact of the services and all the things that they're doing wrong is going to far exceed the actual investment that could have been made to fix it. And and that is a logical, as a, as a business owner myself, I'd, like if I was running a company and this was the outcome, I would quickly find a way to change it. And I just feel like that is what we need our leaders to, to, to understand and Americans to understand. Because I think it, it at, the, at the end of the day, it's us, right? We have the power. We're the ones that need to advocate for these uh, changes to take place for the benefit of all our communities. But so let's take it now to a very, very uh, base level, how it's viewed uh, by America down to some some pretty uh, brass tacks here. What you hear is that the political left says um, we, we shouldn't be stopping people at the border. We should be making sure they get this service. We should be making sure that they get uh, this uh, accommodation. And there's this unlimited amount of money. Then you hear from the political uh, right that says we have veterans who are homeless and they, we have to be taking care of Americans first. You discuss Libre Initiative as reaching out to uh, Hispanic community, to 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 Americans who uh, either come from uh, Central or Southern America, came to, to America, become citizens or on that path uh, or those who have some level of descent, some level of connection. Yeah. Where are the when you have this conversation with them about the cost structure, is is it this massive hurdle to overcome? Because uh, the perception is the people who are who are of of or who are Hispanic are overwhelmingly left, or is it a conversation that allows you to enter the door where they're like, well, yeah, that is a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, look, I, I think there has been a, a a perception for a long time that you know, his Hispanic voters tend to vote left only. And I think we are rapidly seeing that disintegrate. We've seen it at least over the last 10 years. But I would go back to the, the, the even the 2000 campaign when President George W. Bush had a 34, 35% uh, Latino vote. There are places where that vote, and we saw it recently in some polling that was done, has is getting close to 50% in a generic ballot for Republican candidates in places that Republicans traditionally didn't do as well as they could potentially do in upcoming elections. And that's part of the work that we're doing is that we're telling Latino voters, hey, listen, you need to make the decision that's best for your family based on these values. If you really believe that these are the values that you care about and that you want to defend. And it doesn't matter the ethnicity of the individual. You know, they could come from the same place that you came from. But if they're doing things that are contrary to what's best for your family, you need to take that into account and vote for somebody else. Um, and it doesn't matter what you hear, the rhetoric. you got to educate yourself and inform yourself. So that's what we're trying to do. I do think that that movement is happening because there is an align there is there is an alignment with the people that come here wanting to protect freedom, opportunity, and wanting to get ahead in life. Now, what you were saying is true. The progressive left is hammering these other statements and hammering these other messages and saying they don't care about you, they hate you, and all they want to do is you know put you in in whatever incarcerate you when you come across the border, all these other things, or or yelling at the top of their lungs. We need more benefits. We need more of this. I still to this day, and I I live in Miami very dynamic, very immigrant community. And I've traveled the country for Libre and I lived in New York City as a kid. I have never met one immigrant that has told me I came to America looking for benefits. I always meet people that tell me I came to America looking for opportunity. And if I, what I would tell someone that ever told me, hey, I came to America looking for benefits. I'm like, well, you came to the wrong place. You need to get on an airplane and fly to Spain. Because if you land in Spain and, and you know the European system, they'll gladly give you all the benefits you want, but there'll be a limit to how far you could get ahead in life. In, in that country. Right. Uh, and I have family there and, and we have this conversation all the time. But I think here most Hispanics, Hispanic voters, but just Hispanic families don't want handouts. 
They don't want the, the they, and they don't want to see this, what's happening, for example, in New York City and so on. And funny enough, the progressive left, you couldn't get more progressive than 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 the government of New York City. Uh, and now they're the ones that are saying, hey, enough. Hey, this right. is a disaster. Uh, you know, but we've been let down by the federal government and they are right. But at the same time, they are the ones who have created these problems by creating these perverse incentives. Uh, that you're sort of guaranteed a right to housing the minute you arrive. That is that is the worst thing you could do for someone. And frankly, it's unsustainable. And that system is starting to collapse in those cities. So we need to get in front of this quickly and make sure that we're addressing the chronic problem that is border security mm -hmm. before we could then get to addressing some sort of solutions to the legal system, right? Which is what, what I think eventually starts to solve a lot of these issues. Jose Malaya, CEO of the Libre Initiative, the border is multifaceted. It is not one size fits all, but it has to start with American safety and security and American needs. And from there, man, we could do a lot and we're going to need to find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Big breaking news, they've recalled Coke. I love cocaine! No, no, no. No, Coca-Cola. Coca. Coca-Cola, remain. Remain calm, everybody. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Yeah, so there's been this slight recall right now. 2,000 Diet Coke, Sprite, and Fanta cases due to possible contamination. The recall began on November 6th, was initiated by a group called United Packers, based in Mobile, Alabama. I, I honestly don't know how the foreign contaminants can get into the cans. I don't quite understand how that works. Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. So if you know anybody in those states, uh, be on, on the lookout. Mostly Sprite, 400-plus uh, cases of Diet Coke, only 14 cases of Fanta Orange, which is good because Fanta Orange is amazing. Um, just to be aware and just be careful. Um, uh, they say the recall is complete, but always have your friends double-check. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. For all the conversations we have about the border, probably nothing creates more visceral reaction than a conversation about the wall. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com as we finish up Border Week here, presented by Americans for Prosperity, AmericansForProsperity.org. The wall brings about emotion. Trump, he's just uh, a xenophobe. And, and, and the wall, uh, they'll just climb right over it. The wall serves a purpose, and Border Patrol has been trying to explain this. 
It's not so much about keeping people out in so many places around the country. The wall is well within the U.S. border. People who have crossed are already here. It's about being able to apprehend and letting Border Patrol do their job. Jordan Fischetti is an immigration policy fellow with Americans for Prosperity, and this is the question I put to him first. What is the wall? The wall is like, as you said, it's a system of barriers, right? There's not one complete wall from sea to shining sea. I mean, I know Trump said he wanted that, but we didn't come anywhere near that. What it is, is a different system of barriers with a lot of gaps in between. And like you said, it's a fence. It's not a wall because with a fence, you can look through, see what the smugglers, cartel members are doing on the other side. With a wall, you don't have that kind of uh, vision. You don't have that kind of intelligence. And the purpose of a wall is not to stop everybody. It will stop some people, but it will divert others to areas where it's easier for Border Patrol to apprehend them. And with still others that insist on either going above, under, or through a wall, it gives Border Patrol time to apprehend them. And in like a city where people can quickly disappear into the, uh, sorry, in a city where people can quickly blend into the population, or near a highway where they can quickly disappear into the interior of the country, seconds count, right? And where seconds count of a wall can stop you for a few minutes, better yet, a parallel system of a wall, that could be the difference between one of the 1.7 million gotaways we've seen since Biden took office and an apprehension. So let's let's break it down just a, a little bit further. That the wall's purpose, while it can physically stop people from entering the country, the purpose is to slow them down. Border Patrol knows this and approves of this. Absolutely. Uh, as one Border Patrol agent uh, said in a video I was watching yesterday, you could build a 100-foot wall. Somebody will come up with a 100-foot ladder. But that's not the point. A wall is just one piece of the border security puzzle. You also need personnel. Obviously, a wall has never apprehended anybody. I mean, maybe they're working on a smart wall right now with robot arms that I don't know about. Maybe. But you need people for the time being. You need people to actually apprehend them. And you also need technology because one thing that happens is that smugglers will cut through the wall. That has happened, unfortunately, thousands of times. Right. But that is not an argument against the wall. Because again, a wall does not stand alone. And that's the problem we've seen. We've seen a false debate on this. On one hand, you decide that says a wall will keep everybody out. On the other hand, you have people that say, well, people can get through or over a wall. Walls are ineffective. That is not the point. A wall is just one part of the security apparatus. You need personnel, but you also need technology. So if there is a bridge in the wall, you can have a sensor or a video camera that detects where that occurred. Border Patrol can go and fix that so that many people then do not come and exploit that gap. Talking to you, Jordan Fischetti of Americans for Prosperity about what the wall is and how it works. The technology piece. What about the technology of the wall it, itself and, and, and how we build this a, as a fence so we can see through it. And, and it, it, it does, but it, it, it's good reasoning here. You want to see who's coming. Yeah. You build a, 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 a full flush wall. You don't get to see who's on the other side without the technology. So you get the same value and much less cost. Well, absolutely. Because obviously poles are going to be less costly than a complete wall. I mean, look, you think of the wall of China, right? Like, I think that's what Trump was thinking of. It looks impressive, but it was surmounted many times. 
it's a lot more effective for officers to be able to see through, but it's also much more effective when it comes with technology. That's something that Chief Clem often talks about. So when Biden terminated the wall contracts when he took office, right, it wasn't just a wall. It was a wall with sensors, with video cameras, with access roads. A lot of the sectors along the border lack navigable roads. So it makes it much more difficult for Border Patrol to see what's actually going on along the border. So when I think when Biden terminated those contracts, it wasn't just the wall, right? It was a whole host of, like I said, of a security apparatus, the wall, you know, it's, technology. It, it's, it's interesting when you talk about uh, the, the border itself, people forget that there are areas, Yuma sector you talk about, uh, former Border Patrol uh, Chief, uh, Sector Chief uh, uh, Clem, Chris Clem. Uh, and then you've got, for example, McAllen, Texas, where your border is the Rio Grande, which is this unbelievably winding uh, bit of, of border. And there are times Mexico is north of the United States, which I've experienced. It's a very weird, weird feeling because of how uh, the, the river goes and it juts in. The wall is already on the U.S. side. And so before we get into the technology piece, it's again a reminder that for the people who think that the wall is the is just going to keep everybody out, the wall in a lot of parts of Texas, in those of Brownsville and, and, and moving its way up, those people are already in the United States. We haven't solved our problem with the wall. What we're doing is, as you described it, apprehending people before they're able to disappear into the country and not be found. That's precisely right. I mean, you could literally build a fence right on the coast of the Rio Grande, but you would still be in America because once you hit the middle of that river, you're already in America. And when you're in America, you can apply for asylum as long as you have a credible fear, though they've not been doing credible fear interviews anymore, but that's a whole nother discussion. But because of flooding, you can't build a fence there. See, a lot of times you build a fence a couple hundred feet or up to even a mile from the wall. By that point, they're well inside of America. And the purpose, like I said, is to slow people down. And it's to slow people down that either want to escape or are told by coyotes that this is what they need to do, right? There's a lot of people that just give themselves up to Border Patrol. And we don't often discuss that, but when we went down to the border, we went three times to McAllen, another time to Yuma, Arizona. Each time Border Patrol told us, they're spending most of their time with give-ups. People who will literally just walk up to Border Patrol. Sometimes wait for them in the bed of their trucks so they come back from an eight-hour shift and they see a whole family in the bed of their truck. And what happens there is that that diverts them from actually apprehending people at the border. So when that happens, you're not going to get the personnel to apprehend the ball crossers because 80% of them are processing asylum seekers. And so this is where that, that other part of the conversation comes in as you're talking about the technology that came with the wall, talking to Jordan Fischetti of Americans for Prosperity, the cameras and, and other things. Was it just about the sensors, the areas where you're not going to have a wall at all because it's too barren, it's too much uh, wasteland? Somebody would have to travel a very long distance to be able to cross in some of those New Mexico kind of places, parts of uh, eastern, southeastern uh, Arizona, very difficult to get to. Is that the technology piece that has also been eliminated by the canceling of these contracts by President Biden? So... The technology that was contract that was canceled by the contracts was where the wall was going to go, and it wasn't going to go in necessarily all of these locations. 
Um, but you do need technology in those remote areas, right? A wall doesn't make sense. So Border Patrol will talk about three different impact zones. There's the high impact, which is like an urban area where people can quickly disappear in seconds. Then there's rural areas where it might take them minutes or hours. And then there's remote areas where it might take them days. So in rural areas and especially remote areas, if it's already going to take you hours or days to reach the nearest highway or the nearest city, a wall that slows you down by 10 minutes is not a good investment. Technology like drones, sensors, cameras, that's what we need to figure out where they are so then Border Patrol can come and actually make an apprehension. So, so speaking why, about technology, so go on. No, I was going to ask, why is this the impossible subject? The conversation we just had about what a wall does, what a wall doesn't do, the technology that accompanies a wall, not every place needs a wall. A lot of people never get to hear this conversation. All we hear is walls bad or walls good, right? Depending on someone's political ideology and that's it. It makes sense in, in every rational way if the objective is to slow people down and be able to apprehend them and then find out their status so we can move forward about whether or not they should be in the country. It would seem to, to, to observers that to not want to do that is to not want to get that information. Maybe I'm wrong. What's the hang up on moving forward with this level of border protection? I think the hang up is um, in Congress is politics as usual, but also just among the general population. Um, I can tell you this, uh, a lot of my friends, family are left of center, right? And they've heard me talk about a border wall and they've come up to me and they said, that makes a lot of sense. I think we should have a wall in strategic locations. But I didn't like a wall before because I associated it with Trump or people like Trump. So I think the issue was that people associated the border wall with the rest of Trump's policies, which especially if you're left of center, you're generally speaking not going to like. So they weren't open to hearing it at all. Because as soon as they heard border wall, they just imagined the whole bevy of, in their mind, right, bad policy. So I think that when people are willing to have these discussions, right, and break it down, show the false choice, right, expose it. It's not a wall across the whole border or no wall at all. A wall in and of itself is not a terrible thing, especially when you're combining it with legal pathways, right? We don't want people to hurt themselves on the wall. That is not what we want. We want the wall to keep the bad people out, right? Or to slow them down. We want legal pathways for these people that are coming and giving themselves up. But we're not talk we're not having a conversation regarding just an uh, a quasi-open border. As long as you come in through these places, you're definitely allowed in the country. We are talking about background checks. We are talking about having a standard. Uh, the policy is is uh, on the wall is to be able to slow people down to know who's coming into the country. But there are a series of policies that we need to get into behind that. Uh, surely, I don't think you're advocating for a quasi open border situation. Not one bit. Not one bit. And the problem that we've seen is that when people talk about illegal migration, right? They just assume that like that's all that people can do, right? They kind of throw them their hands up and they say, well, this is just going to happen. It doesn't have to be this way, right? It's not humane for anybody. I mean, except for the smugglers and the cartels, right? But these, these are people who, look, there's always going to be bad people crossing the border. And that's why you want border patrols to protect us from those people, right? 
But for everybody else, we need to expand the legal pathways, right? And not just for permanent migration. A big misconception that people on both sides of the aisle have is that everybody who comes here, comes here and they want to stay permanently. That's what we're getting right now, because once you've already taken this dangerous crossing, risked your life, paid tens of thousands of dollars, you're not going back, right? But what you used to have is you'd have people that would come seasonally. They'd come to work, they'd go back home. Come to work, go back home. We have programs that allow you to do that, like the H2A, H2B program. But I'm sure, as Sam has told you much more eloquently than I could, those programs are mired in so much bureaucracy that most farmers just throw up their hands or other businesses throw up their hands and say, I'm going to hire people who came illegally, which is another drive for people to come illegally. If we have a functioning legal system, right, both for permanent immigration and for seasonal migration, combined with a wall of strategic locations, sensors, cameras, access roads, what you'll have is a system where the majority of the people that are crossing the border are people that either want to do us harm or have existing deportation orders. And those who want to come to do good will have a channel to come here. Not everybody. There's no such thing as a perfect system, right? Even if we had the best legal immigration system, there are still going to be people that need to escape from their country, like Venezuela, for instance. It's very difficult to wait around in Venezuela for your papers, even if it was a good system, which it's not. But our system is so terrible right now, both from the Border Patrol perspective and the legal immigration perspective, that if we don't do something soon about it, this is going to become, I mean, it already is overwhelming, but it's just going to get worse. And that's the point. It's its going to get worse. And and, and again, I, I would state as clear as day, you know, the, the our responsibility is not to say everybody uh, welcome. A, a, our question is, what is a smart policy for us that also happens to help others? But I, I, I do phrase it in that way. What's a smart policy for the nation, for the United States, that which is a anything that involves our safety and security, and then is also helpful because we, we forget there is a worker need. I, I mean, that, that goes without saying. I mean, we talk about the fact that there are, you know, millions of jobs uh, available in the United States. Well, those are all sorts of jobs, but there are jobs out there, especially in those farming communities, in those agricultural communities. When we talk about jobs other people don't want to do, uh, that there's a truism uh, to this, and there is a value, a serious economic uh, input output to the United States to having these legal opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, we have one of the worst worker shortages that we've seen in decades, really. And if you look, I'm going to go back to the example of farms. American farmers, are just, they're struggling to find Americans that want to do the job. And that's been the way for decades at this point. There was a uh, survey from, I think, 2012, uh, where the North Carolina Growers Association, I think that was their name, um, they... Um, tried to fill 7,000 positions, right, for H-2A visas. That's the agricultural laborers. And first, you have to open the position to American workers. Of the 7,000 positions they wanted to fill, 143, just 143 actually signed up to do it from America, and only 12 actually stayed until the end. That's, I mean, I mean it, 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 it speaks volumes. It does. And I think it shows, like, two things. Not only do we have a shortage, right, uh, where we need to make it easier for those farmers to hire um, migrant labor. 
But this is a shortage that's not taking jobs away from Americans because Americans, simply speaking, don't want to do it. Uh, when we were in Yuma, Arizona, we spoke to a, a big farmer there, a guy named Phil Townsend. Uh, he was first he was talking about how difficult it is to hire people in the H-2A program. And then I asked him, I was like, well, why don't you just hire Americans? And he just laughed. He goes, no American, no American says, when I'm an adult, I want to pick lettuce. And it's just, it's so true. We need this labor. But unfortunately, one thing that's not being discussed is that Biden is hamstringing American small businesses. He recently, his administration recently passed a regulation that would triple the paperwork, add tens of thousands of dollars to an already expensive bureaucratic process of hiring somebody for just a season. And then they're proposing another regulation, which will almost certainly go into effect, that will allow labor organizations access to work sites for up to 10 hours a month. They can come unannounced. They must get all of the employees' contact information, including email, phone numbers, and employers will know whether or not they want to enter into collective bargaining association. And they can say no, right? But then that information is available to the labor organizations. And if they can go on to the work site for up to 10 hours, talk with all of the workers, and there's something like 200 rules that farmers need to follow. Oh, and now they need to follow also local state rules, which are also, I don't know how many exactly it would be, depends on the state. You think those labor orgs are not going to find something, right, that they can report back to the government? So you drown these people in regulation, and then you make it easier for the unionization to happen. This is no way to treat a country or the border. Jordan Fischetti, Americans for Prosperity, I appreciate you taking the time. More is coming up. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. This is Tony Katz today. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So yesterday it was all about the Fed saying we're not going to have any rate hikes and we might bring rates down three different times in 2024. And the market went absolutely nutty. And now the market's taking a look at statements from John Williams, who's the president of the Federal Reserve of New York, saying that rate cuts are not a topic of discussion at the moment for the central bank. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. And that's why, you know, today, are you going to see a big up in the market will be slightly down? Look, it's been up for weeks now. Slightly down is is okay. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Guys, the Fed is going to be so quiet about rate cuts. If they come in 2024, three of them, three quarters of a point altogether, that would be huge. But the idea that the Fed's going to talk about it and talk about it, make everybody feel good about it every second of the day, that's crazy town crazy town one step at a time people and don't believe anything until you see it D- certainly don't bet on it that's my advice not that you should take advice from me on when it comes to the markets this is tony katz today 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Now, I know what you're saying, Tony. You can't talk to me about polls when you're a guy who talks about the polling and says, I don't believe the polling. When we take a look at presidential polling and I see Trump ahead by 50, I say, okay, I got all these polls that say he's ahead by 50. I'm willing to accept that that's what the polls say. I'm waiting to see what Iowa tells me. Is every Do the polls relate to how people have to show up to vote, especially in a caucus state? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. It doesn't mean that when I see something that I don't go, well, that's a story. And one of the bigger polling stories that came out the other day from the Heartland Institute in conjunction with Rasmussen reports states that one in five, that's 20% for those of you playing the home game, one in five voters who cast mail-in ballots during the 2020 presidential election admit to participating in at least one kind of voter fraud. That number is criminally insane. Jim Lakely joins me right now. He is the vice president and director of communications for the Heartland Institute. Heartland.org, you were saying to me before we we, we, we got on, that this is, this is the biggest poll you've ever done. This might be the biggest thing that Rasmussen has ever done. No one can even comprehend the numbers. So I want you to take it, take me through it. What made you put this poll into the field and what did the data tell you? Well, uh, Tony, it's an honor to be on with you and to be able to speak with your audience. But, you know, we, we kicked the idea for this poll around, you know, um, because we're not allowed to talk about having any qualms or any, any questions about the results and the way the 2020 election was executed by uh, states across the country. So we thought, you know, what if we asked people if they did X or Y or Z and if they mailed in their ballots and if they didn't, did these sorts of things? What if we just asked them that? We don't, you don't ask people, hey, did you commit voter fraud? But you ask them, hey, did you happen to fill out a ballot in part or in full for a friend or a family member? Did, um, did you sign a ballot that wasn't uh, put somebody else's signature on a ballot that wasn't yours? Um, and so when you, you, you ask these questions, those things are voter fraud. That, that's a fraudulent vote that should not be counted, that should be thrown out. And what we, what we found was that if you ran down all of these different types of voter fraud, just, just you know, described very, I guess, innocently to people's minds, one in five mail-in voters did one of these illegal things to a ballot. It's shocking. I mean, we had no idea that we would get results like this back. We thought maybe, you know, if 5% or 10%, we, that's kind of where we were guessing the range would be. So what this shows is what everybody kind of knows in their gut, that the 2020 election was not on the up and up, that throwing out um, all election rules, mailing everybody a ballot, having no structures in place to make sure that these ballots are legitimate, um, makes, makes the 2020 election very much in doubt. I mean, I think we actually don't know who really won the 2020 election. You know, maybe Biden won, maybe Trump won, but Biden's in the White House and he got there because we threw out all election rules went to mail-in ballots when one in five of them 
and there's no way to track this, of course. It's, it's obviously too late. But the purpose of setting up this, this crazy way to elect a president because of COVID um, was used by the left to make sure that we had a very chaotic election system. And it turns out that one in five people who mailed in ballots admitted that they committed some sort of voter fraud. It's absolutely shocking. This should not be happening in America. So let me jump in with with a couple of things. First, I absolutely oppose mail-in balloting because it creates the opportunity for voter fraud. Second, I'll say here, and, and I'll argue it with anybody, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. This is not our debatable thing. What is the question is exactly how often do things like this happen and how could it not be obvious to everyone that by allowing the mail-in voting in the ways that we did under the guise of COVID, that you create these issues. You break down specifically what the issues are. You can find the reporting on this at heartland.org. Walk me through it, starting with the 21% of mail-in voters admitting they filled out a ballot for a friend or a family member. Right. I mean, we, we just asked here. I'm looking at the question right now at our poll. During the 2020 election, did a friend, family member, or organization, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, this is a different question. Um, did they offer you or, um, or a friend or a family member a reward or to pay you for voting? That, that, that's a question we asked, Tony. We thought, no one's going to admit to that. Well, <laughs> they did admit to that. Uh, 8% of, pe- of likely voters admitted that they were offered a reward for their vote. Again, this is, this is illegal. You, <laughs> that, that is a federal crime. You cannot do that. Um, you know, we asked if you have any friends or acquaintances who have also reported to you that they committed voter fraud. 10% of likely voters said that they did that. I mean, in fact, you know, when we say in the poll that like, the takeaway is that one in five mail-in votes um, were some sort of voter fraud, that's not even necessarily, uh, you know, the, the, the whole number because there is overlap on these things. Perhaps you did two or three of these items. Maybe you just did one. I mean, it's, you know, people that have that question, of course, you're not allowed to, our social media companies shut you down. They, they nuke your YouTube channel from space. If you talk, if you have any questions at all about the legitimacy of the 2020 election, our media um, doesn't report on it. Our, our government uh, assures us, Tony, that 2020 was the most secure election in history. I mean, the gaslighting for all of this was off the charts. And what it has done, it, it suppressed speech. People knew in there, a lot of people know in their guts that there was something fishy going on. But when there is enormous pressure from every aspect of society that you're not allowed to talk about it, despite the fact that Democrats have not considered any Republican for the last 23 years to be legitimately elected president, let's put that aside. But, you know, investigations, like say, say you see a security cam video of a van showing up at a, at a polling place in a swing state at three in, three in the morning and unloading all of these boxes. Say you see video of them closing the windows as they count the votes. Um, say you see a, a surveillance video of somebody stuffing a bunch of ballots into a, uh, into a drop box somewhere. You know, the left and the media could just wave that away and say, you have no idea what was going on there. You don't know what was in those boxes. You don't know that those votes weren't legitimate. But when you do a poll and you ask voters, if they have done this thing or this thing or this thing, which are all part, which are all um, voter fraud, and 20% of them said, yeah, I did that. That can't be denied. You can explain away or try to explain away um, any other, you know, quote unquote evidence 
that the election wasn't on the up and up. But you can't explain away, uh, explain away that one in five mail-in voters admit that they committed some sort of voter fraud. You can't make that go away. This is changing the conversation. You are, we're allowed to talk about this again, or at least we should be. Talking to Jim Lakely, Vice President and Director of Communications for the Heartland Institute, heartland.org. The number that jumps out, because the, the part where I, I am in wholehearted agreement is that there are people out there who tell you you can't even bring these things up. I believe you can bring anything up if you've got data to go with it. Here's the one that jumped out at me, Jim. 17% of mail-in voters, according to your polling, said they signed a ballot for a friend or family member with or without his or her permission. The other things, some people could actually want to explain away, oh, they were helping a friend, it's fine, it's harmless. As a matter of fact, how often does that happen? They're helping a family member who's infirm, they're not really 100% and in, in getting to the, to the post office, all those kinds of things. This one, to me, was the one who, that, that jumped out, uh, as well as uh, helping people vote in a state where they were no longer a permanent resident, that's fraud. Um, signing a ballot without someone's permission that is an yeah. admission of, of guilt and of, of, of illegality, period, full stop. Right. That, that's, that's the, but yeah, 17% said they voted in a state where they're no longer a permanent resident. That's a pretty clear violation of election law. But yeah, signing a ballot without somebody's permission, full stop, very clear voter fraud. And 17% of uh, mail-in voters said that they, did, that they had done that. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, obviously it's too late. You can't go back. We can't fix the 2020 election. But I really hope that uh, legis- state legislators and, you know, election law is a state-by-state deal. I hope they are watching, they paid attention to this poll. We have an election coming up in 11 months. There are a lot of loose laws in states, especially swing states across this country. State legislatures, and it would have to be run by Republicans because Democrats will not do this. All these systems were invented by Democrats. A Republican legislature in a swing state must take action this year to fix, to fix it so that as much of this fraud cannot happen. This, this, you don't have an election if, if this sorts of thing go on. You have something else. We don't have a democracy or a representative republic when our elections are completely chaotic and rife for fraud. And this is what plays into the conversation, Jim, about banana republic type feel what actually has happened to the country have we lost it i am opposed to mail-in balloting because it creates the opportunity for fraud and this data would would prove me right i have been saying this uh, for for years you did another poll this poll states that 47 percent of likely voters believe that trump is guilty of the alleged crimes to overturn the 2020 election well great they can think that but it doesn't matter 18, because you have to be found, uh, you know, guilty. And right now he's innocent until proven guilty. 18% of Democrat likely voters think Trump should be punished by jail for life, permanent exile, or death if found guilty. What the hell kind of poll is this, Jim? Well, that was another part. We wanted to, we wanted to gauge the public's uh, perceptions of Donald Trump's alleged crimes and what his punishment, punishment should be for it. Now, look, 47% of likely voters say they believe Trump is guilty of alleged crimes to overturn the 2020 election. Now, look, if I was asked, and I'm a Trump supporter, if I was asked, did Trump try to overturn the 2020 election? I would actually answer, yes, he did try. He was challenging the results, 
legally and constitutionally. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, they, um, Democrats were trying to do the same thing when Trump won in 2016. Correct. But it's the idea that, that I mean, I think it was uh, 4% of Democrats think Donald Trump should be executed, get the electric chair or lethal injection, or maybe just have to listen to uh, Hillary Clinton talk for two hours straight. That would probably kill him, too. Uh, but put to death for challenging the uh, results of the 2020 election, which our own poll shows was very unusual at the very least, but obviously rife with actual voter fraud. And so, you know, this country, we all know this country has probably, it's just so divided where there's so much hate and vitriol pointed at, uh, at, at each side in this country. And it's gotten to the point where some people think the president should be killed, executed for questioning, for being quote unquote guilty of trying to quote unquote overturn the 2020 election. That's pretty dark, man. So when you, when you assemble this data, and and I mean it it, it is the, these polls have exploded. People have been talking about them all, all across the, the the country. What what is the result? Right, you you've been making I think a, a very very fine argument that it allows for the conversation to take place because the conversation should always be allowed to take place. But is that the goal? Mm-hmm. Is that the purpose of the polling? Or is there something else that you would like to see that heartland.org would like to see build from this? Well, I mean, I think part of the reason we, we did this poll was because we wanted to see, um, we, we kind of wanted to see if we could confirm what we knew in our gut, that the 2020 election was not on the up and up, that there was rampant fraud, and really, the only way to, to, to measure that with a poll was just to ask them. Ask them, if, did you do a mail-in ballot? Because 43% of votes in the 2020 election were mailed in. And most of those, um, and I think two-thirds of them or more, were for Biden voters. Most of the Trump voters in 2020 showed up on Election Day, as you should as a good American. You should take the time to physically you know, present yourself to a polling place and cast your vote, not this nonsense of mailing in votes. I'm 100% with you on that, Tony. But, you know, and then the second uh, part of the poll um, was to kind of see, well, okay, I mean, all Democrats basically think Donald Trump is guilty of crimes against democracy and all that kind of nonsense. So what do they think should happen to him? And um, we didn't even ask, just ask that, Tony. Um, I have bad news for you, my friend. You are also in very big trouble. In fact, I am right now just by speaking on your radio show. Because 48% of likely voters say that media members who alleged election fraud should be criminally punished if Trump is also found guilty of those crimes. So this poll actually ended up being a kind of perpetual punishment machine. By just doing this poll, we are supposedly spreading the idea um, uh, (laughs) that the election was not on the up and up. And because of doing that, um, we should be punished as well. Um, And I don't think very many says Tony, that guys like you and me should be put to death, but um, a fine would be very much in order, or maybe a year or two in prison, just so we learn our lesson and to not talk about things that are not approved narratives from our uh, ruling class. Yeah, as you have it here in the polling, 48% of Democrat-likely voters believe media members who alleged election fraud should be banned from public speaking, receive prison time, or a combination of, of of both uh you mean if i even discussed it i i'm guilty because i believe that 100 percent of those 48 percent can kiss my ass i'm just saying that if they, if we're going to be doing some polling i i took the poll and uh, it, yeah. uh unanimous unanimous jim lakely 
is his name. He is the vice president and director of communications for the Heartland Institute, heartland.org. Uh, you know, we joke, but some of these things are just, this This is our society. This, this is dangerous stuff. We'll talk more about it. Jim Lakely, appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. So we, we finish up this, this border week, and I appreciate everybody who, who was a part of it and was talking about it and sharing uh, the content. All the videos will be up at TonyCats.com and our Rumble channel, rumble.com slash TonyCats. The, the recognition of, of all of the pieces involved, but, but one of the, the, the main threads has to be remembered. Uh, border policy has to be of purpose and value to the United States, not against it. It cannot be a negative. It must be a positive where American people are safe and secure and American opportunities are are, uh, enhanced. These things have to be the baseline by which we build everything else. You cannot have safety as you learn that 10 IEDs, that's improvised explosive devices, were found at the U.S.-Mexico border border in a cartel gunfight. This from Fox News. Border Patrol warning agents to, quote, exercise extreme caution, unquote. The Mexican military seizing these 10 IEDs at the border. Our border is not something to be played with. It's now officially a war zone. And until we force members of Congress to do something, we will get nothing except more of this, which we cannot abide. Find everything at TonyCats.com. Monday, everyone. Take care. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.